Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a live edition. We are so excited to be joined by Ali Vitali. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today I'm wearing a special pin in honor of Ali's new book. It is a pin of a couple with a woman dancing backwards in high heels. And I think, Ali, that you will be relating to that because of some of the things you wrote in your book about Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, right? Absolutely. I have a line in there about doing it backwards and in heels. So here's the pin that honors that. Um, It's perfect. I need to get one. Because I'm young, I had actually never heard of that pin until, or that saying until Jill. (laughs) And then I read your, uh, that excerpt in uh, your book. And then I wrote in the margin, Jill. So I I knew Jill would appreciate it, but um, Jill taught me that saying. And so I feel like now I, um, and well-versed. And of course, you need no introduction, Allie. Um, but we, uh, aside from the fact that you're a regular on NBC News as the Capitol Hill correspondent, but also you are the author of this new book titled Electable, Why American Women Have Not Been Elected Yet to the White House. Yet, and stressing the yet. Um, it's a great read, Thank you. For me, it was a dramatic example of the divide, the, the generational divide, because for me, it was anger inducing that this is still going on. I graduated law school more than 50 years ago, and those stereotypes held back women then. Yeah. And the fact that Victor is now learning that it's a real problem Um I'm so glad you wrote it because Thank you. you have the platform to make this a clarion call for gender equality and for 50% of the country being treated badly, more than 50%. Yeah. Um, and so I hope that your generation and Victor's generation will finally get busy on solving the problem that these stereotypes face. I mean, my generation burned their bras. Today's <laughs> women in Iran are burning their headscarves. Yeah. But what are the women of America doing? That's what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, we to know you a little bit better because we see you a lot on TV and so much of the work that you do. Uh, now you're an author. Uh, we've seen your reporting in 2020. So let's start maybe with your path to journalism. Did you always want to be a journalist? I wanted to be a late night television producer because I had a perfectly placed internship at the late show with Jimmy Fallon before he moved to the main slot. Now when then he had Seth Meyers slot Um, and I interned there and I was like, this is amazing. I want to be a late night TV producer. And I knew a little bit about politics and it happened that my path back into NBC after that internship was at dot com as an overnight reporter. I got the news bug. I kind of went from there. I was a producer at MSNBC, and then I got to be an embed in 2015, and they assigned me to Donald Trump as my candidate, and we all know how that went, as I I chart in my book. Um, I covered his White House. I then covered the 2018 midterms, and that landed me squarely on the 2020 campaign trail, pretty far from the late night producing I thought I would do, but hey, life's long. But almost related, because I read in your book that you wanted to run for president or you wanted to run for some type of office when you were uh, in, I think, elementary or middle school. Um, That didn't work out, but I guess you still had uh, your your part in a campaign. What is a campaign embed like? Like, what do you what do you do as a campaign embed? 
Well, first of all, my very ill-fated run for <laughs> class president in high school, like president of the whole school, was indicative and paints a larger lesson for me in the book of how my campaign then, uh, people criticized me and my running mate, who was also a woman, uh, for being just too too perfect in our handwriting on our posters seemed an odd thing to criticize. Uh, we wanted to do the job too much. We were too serious. And in the same way that we were just too, I think I heard so many of those criticisms translated to women with much bigger platforms than mine. So there was a lesson to be learned in that. But for me, life on the campaign trail, it's a new experience every day. You are jumping from state to state, hotel to hotel. Oftentimes you are thankful for the campaigns that will put a little poster on the table that you're sitting at that says you are in X state, <laughs> Greenville, South Carolina, and it is September 27th. I mean, you are so thankful that for that, especially as you're doing five to six rallies a day and you're just trying to get wow. your dateline right or not say the wrong place or state on TV. Um, but it's amazingly exhilarating. And frankly, I usually say to people, I cannot believe that I get paid to go and talk to Americans about what matters to them, what's motivating them, and that I'm given the opportunity to help them understand who the people are who are running to represent them and ideally make their lives in this country better. So I feel really lucky. I love getting to cover politics campaigns and now the Hill where we are just so, so busy all the time. <laughs> wow. And you are lucky. You have the job that I originally really wanted. I went to law school to get a better job in journalism. My undergraduate wow. degree is journalism. Huh. And um, I want to talk about your book, but something you said just makes me want to say, and that is about running for class president. Yep. Um, I was running for just not the school president, but just for my seventh grade class president. And it was at a time when we put our heads down on our little desks and voted, you know, in secret. And when they called my name, I didn't vote for myself. And the teacher stopped the election, called me out in the hall and said, if you don't have the confidence to vote for yourself, then you shouldn't be running. And I said, but it's not wow. ladylike to vote for yourself. Oh my I gosh. had fallen for the, the stereotypes. And I went back in that room and I voted for myself and I won. Uh, so anyway, um, I Jill, you're that. a better political candidate than me. But <laughs> isn't it indicative, though, too, in those lessons, like the things that are ingrained in us about gender? And like, yes. this is actually yeah. something that I tease out in the book, just the qualities that we associate with men versus women, men being agentic, singular leaders, people who should be right. followed, women being leaders of communities, but being consensus builders, being part of larger bodies. That's partly why we've seen women do so well in, in getting elected to Congress, thankfully, in recent years, but also why executive roles remain not much more difficult because the qualities that we associate with them because of the patriarchal structures that we've all been brought up in are internalized and only recently are we starting to unpack them. Right, but I'm just I'm just sick that what happened to me and how I fell for it and luckily I've outgrown that and overcome it, but um but I still have some of those things within me and have yeah. to fight it all the time. I'm just wondering, because your book is so much about the stereotypes of women and the limitations and hurdles that that puts in front of them. But is it true for Republicans and Democrats? And you just mentioned the difference between executive positions like yeah. governor or president and legislative positions or even things like 
the prime minister of England, which is more viewed as a consensus building role where you put together different parties to form a ruling coalition. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there's so many great things that you bring up there. And it speaks to some deliberate decisions that I made throughout this book, right? We're focusing on the presidency, the most executive of all the executive offices. We're also focusing on primaries as opposed to general elections, because it's in primaries that you see so many of these gender and race dynamics, both from a biased perspective, but also just from access to resources thresholds. Like, what kind of staff are you attracting? Where are you in the larger party apparatus? How are you making the money that you need to mount a national campaign that's probably going to last you about a year and a half? if not longer than that, because these campaigns just run so long. So that's why I'm focused there. And 2020 provided the perfect jumping off point, just because you'd never had more than one woman viably running in the same cycle ever before. So after 2016, you had the specter of Hillary Clinton looming over the 2020 race. And then you had six women who were running to sort of finish that job that Hillary Clinton had not been able to finish. I also love the point that you make about Republicans and Democrats, though, because even though Democrats will talk more overtly about gender politics, and this is true Mm -hmm. of voters and candidates both, on the Republican side, the grassroots hates talking about gender identity and identity politics, but that doesn't mean that it's not, Mm -hmm. in the words of Carly Fiorina, different when you're different. Republicans are still subjected to the same biases They clear those thresholds in different ways than Democrats, in large part because they're not speaking directly to it. But these biases are still there on both sides. It's really sad that we're still there, especially because in preparing to talk to you, I Googled women presidents, women prime ministers, and we're talking about more than five dozen who have held positions since 1940s. Um, you know, you had, I mean, you can go back to Israel was an early one, but more recently, you know, Margaret Thatcher and now Liz Truss and, um, many, many, many others. And how come we are so far behind all of those other countries? Why is it okay in Canada, our neighbor to the North to have a female leader And somehow we just can't crack that final glass ceiling, even with someone who won the popular vote, Hillary Clinton, someone who was clearly the most qualified candidate who's probably ever run for the presidency. Why are we so far behind? What's what's wrong here? So look, there is a systemic argument to be made, right? Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. But we don't elect our presidents that way. We do them through an electoral college system. I think the thing that I tend to keep in mind here, too, is that the American political structure, like so many others, is built by white men to hold power for white men and maintain power for white men, which means that anyone who is non-white and non-male needs to recreate their own path within a system that frankly wasn't built for them to succeed within. And so that is at play in the biases that American voters have and that all of us, you included, we're talking about checking our biases in real time, the ways that the patriarchy has instilled in us a certain way of thinking about politics, but then also just the systems that are in place. Think even about the donor base broadly. We saw changes to this in 2018 where women were starting to give to women in numbers that really were able to shift the political game. The same thing happened in 2020. But broadly, 
who is your typical donor? It's probably a rich middle-aged white guy. And when you see someone who looks like you, you're a little bit more likely to give them that benefit of the doubt. Not only that, but also because when you look at who has won the presidency in the past, mm -hmm. it is with the exception of Barack Obama, only white men. And so there is a self-fulfilling prophecy to that, that anyone who's not, not, who is non-white and non-male has to bridge that imagination gap in the minds of voters and donors and potential staffers in order to ultimately get to that space where unfortunately a woman has not yet gotten to. But 2016 is instructive because we do know that at least the majority of the population writ large was willing to elect a female president. That's just not the way we do it here. Yeah. And let me just say, I, I, I want to expand what you said, because it isn't just in politics that this is a right. problem. This is yeah. in law. This is in business. This is in every career path where the, the world is set up for a maybe not white necessarily, but for a male role. Yeah. A partner in a law firm is a white male, uh, mostly. And yeah. it, it affects how women succeed in every career path. But I want to ask you as a journalist, how much is the media responsible for reinforcing those stereotypes? And I will point to some examples. You know, obviously we can look at Hillary and the things that were said about her. But going back even further, headlines about me during Watergate always started with what I was wearing. Headlines identified me as the, the miniskirted lawyer before they said what I said in court. I, I mean, talk about sexism writ large. Yeah. So to me, I blame the media for perpetuating this and not talking equally. But what do you think of that? And how do you get past that? Look, there's a media apparatus to this. And then we also saw it in play in terms of the way that operatives were talking about mm -hmm. women. I mean, there's a media lens that I extend over all of this as a member of the media, where where I, I question the way that we even frame questions at female candidates. Asking a candidate, can you win, is the name of this game, right? You should, you should be able to have a winning theory. But when you ask each individual woman who is there pursuing her individual ambition and policy goals and presidential angle, whether a woman, the collective gender that she is a part of, can win, she is both running her individual race and then also reflective of the entire gender. That yes. is just not something that we ask men to do. And I asked the candidates, because I talked with Senators Gillibrand, Klobuchar, Warren for this, is it helpful or hurtful when I ask you questions like that, right? Mm -hmm. Senator Gillibrand said, I want the opportunity to answer that question. But others at various points, you could tell that it made them go off of their message for the day and instead have to pivot to defending every other woman who had run, yeah. would run, and was running. And that collective defense is not something that we ask men to do. And I also thought about it in the context of after 2016, it seemed like the unofficial lesson was the question of not just can a woman win, because we'd never seen it before, but could a woman beat Donald Trump? And there was a whole debate in January in mm -hmm. Iowa about this that was timed at, I think, one of the most fatal moments in the race for the women running. At that point, it was just Klobuchar and Warren. But the thing that always vexed me about this idea of, well, can a woman beat Trump? Was that, yes, Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump by the metric that mattered. But 
it never made us question if he, if a man couldn't beat Trump, despite the fact that right. 17 of them lost to him during the course of the Republican nominating process. No one was going around wondering if men could beat Trump, but they were wondering because one woman lost to him once, right. hmm. whether or not it was a lost cause. That always drove me kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, so much of this is systemic. And and yeah. like you said, you've talked to so many voters. And one of the things that I've noticed about just young people and Gen Z in particular is that so many of the conversations when you're talking about who's at the table or who gets to sit at the table, I think young people really pay attention to, well, we have to have a woman, we have to have someone of you know different race. And I think that's something that I look at the world that I think that Gen Z really accomplishes. And I'm wondering, just based off of your conversations, have you found that to be true to talking to young voters and talking to voters? Have you seen that shift from, I guess, when you started reporting to now that there is more of a willingness to vote for a woman president? Yeah, look, certainly there's a there's a hyper awareness that didn't exist even a decade ago, I don't think, in the idea that representation matters and also that reflective governance means you probably get better policies that reflect a wider swath of the country. Go figure, right? But I think that 2020 was a sign that diversity sometimes needs to be intentional. Breaking open these spaces where women and people of color have not had seats at the table before means that you have to be intentional about it. And certainly that's something that President Joe Biden did. There are people who are critical, and I think potentially rightfully so, of the way in which he did it. For example, saying, I'm going to pick a woman vice president as opposed to just yeah. picking one and letting it be the best qualified person. There is back and forth over whether or not that was the right way to do it. But to me, it always spoke volumes that Joe Biden was so representative and was such an embodiment of everything that politics has always been, a moderate white male old Democrat who was able to usher in twice in his political career, new eras of what leaders could look like in American politics. First, as the running mate for Barack Obama, who in talking to Obama advisors, it was clear that Biden provided some gray hairs, some gravitas, some establishment feeling, but also he was able to communicate on things as a white man without the burden that Obama had on some key issues. Yeah. And then you have for the second time, Kamala Harris, he's ushering in someone who has never looked like any of the other vice presidents that we have had before. And I said to someone in his orbit, could anyone else have done what Biden did? And their answer was, I don't know, but he's the one who actually did it. And mm -hmm. so there was an intentionality and also a recognition that it was just good politics to have a woman as your running mate, that you could not have a holistic and reflective ticket that didn't have a woman on it in 2020. And that is a real sign of progress because the last two times that we had female vice presidents in 1984 and in 2008, it was from candidates, two men, Mondale and McCain, who were flagging in the polls. They were not doing well politically. And what they were effectively doing by picking a woman was throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping it would energize their bases. What Biden did was at the pinnacle of his power, he said, I recognize that having a woman with me is an asset. And that's a real sign of progress here. It, it is. Of, of course, some of what you're saying does remind me that it is like being the older sister. When you're the first, if you fail, it's like, well, we can never hire another woman yes. because women can't do the job. Whereas, you know, they would never say that about a man who failed. No. And so it, it just reflects the same stereotypes that, you know, you've been talking about so much. I, 
I also want to ask you, because you say in the book very proudly that you are a feminist, which is something that was popular when I was like getting out of law school. Yeah. It seems to have faded so much from, you know, Victor's generation. I don't know if people think of themselves as as feminists uh, in your generation. And you're you're proud and loud about it. And I just wonder if that in any way affects how you cover, because you did cover a lot of female candidates in yeah. the last election. Um, do you think that being a feminist affected how you covered the women you were covering or also the men? I think it allowed me to be a better journalist because I was able to try to chart a path that was even for both the men and the women mm -hmm. candidates that I was covering. And I think that this is why one of the recommendations I make in the book is that in order to eventually get to a place where a woman is elected on her merits, as they all should be, that you need newsrooms that are diverse, that can understand why when Kamala Harris is presenting herself as a woman of color who was part of a sorority that was part of the Divine Nine, why that community for Black women is so powerful yeah. and so important. You need someone who can understand it. When Elizabeth Warren tells a story of pregnancy discrimination and conservative outlets try to delegitimize that story simply because the paperwork didn't say fired because of pregnancy, you need to be able to say, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Being able to access with no degrees of separation the female experience and the biases that these women candidates are experiencing allows you to be a better journalist because you can speak more directly to those dynamics and hopefully disrupt them. Not because I'm a, I'm a person who's out there picking yeah. a candidate that I support, but because I actually think that every voter deserves the opportunity to weigh whether or not all of these candidates are the right candidate for them and the right person to lead this country. So as level as I can make that playing field, all the better. And so I think that was a label that I came to after college, after you know hearing my mom talk to me about it a lot. Another woman, partner in a law firm in New York, the stories she tells me are crazy about that period of time. And Jill, I, I know you can probably relate to them. I should yeah. put you guys in a room together to talk yes. about it. <laughs> I'd love it that. It took me a while to get to that label in part because it felt so, um, so jam-packed with negativity. But I do think that women of my generation and younger generations are recognizing the power of being a feminist, which is just to say, I just want it to be equal across both sides. Mm -hmm. So true and so important scratch like 1% of your book and we can't get to every single example that you use in the book. Um, but let's maybe focus on the elections of 2016 and 2020 yeah. and some of the races there, because one was the first time that we ever had a woman as the nominee of a major political party, which was significant for all generations. Yeah. And the other was the first time so many women ran for president, um, but both illustrated, I think, the uphill battle women have to face, which um, are some of the stereotypes that we discussed. Let's yeah. maybe talk about Hillary Clinton. Um, she told you in numerous conversations that you had with her um, for this book about that election and fighting stereotypes. Tell us maybe some of the most important things that she told you or some of what you consider um, the most important things she told you about um, stereotypes. I think it's fascinating because Secretary Clinton really didn't mince words when we spoke for this book about the dynamics that she saw at play in her race, but then also in 2020, because she was talking to all of the women who were running, or almost all of them, throughout the entire primary. And the thing that struck me is she would chalk her loss up to Comey and Russia, yeah. the Trump of it all, misinformation, but also 
gender. That is all part of the swirling pot that Hillary Clinton explains why she's not President Clinton. But when she was talking to the women who were running in 2020, what she said to me is that all of them expressed at various points in their conversations, they had all run for Senate, most of them in massive states with big political implications. They'd all been elected multiple times. Many of them were the first in most of the jobs that they held. And yet they were shocked at the difference in, in sexism and the dynamics that they faced in the presidential arena. And Clinton's response was basically, I wasn't surprised to hear it because I had been subjected them, yeah. to them too. But it was almost like it was surprising for them. Like the sexism that they experienced was only magnified when they got into the biggest arena of all. And I think that that means that we need to reframe the way we ask some of them questions. We need to focus on the policy. But one of the good things is I was talking to a Democratic strategist while writing this book, and she said that she used to get calls about from male reporters saying, hey, can I write that Kamala Harris looks tired today? Or can I write that she blah, blah, blah? Mm. And this person would respond and say, sure. If you want to say that Joe Biden also looks tired today or that Sherrod Brown looks disheveled or whatever and say it in the same fashion and tone that you're saying it about Kamala Harris, go ahead and say it. But if you wouldn't, then maybe don't. And it means that people are actually thinking about these things. And that's what you want. You want the evolution. You want the narratives disrupted. That's the goal that I had in writing this book. A lot of this stuff, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's hard to see on first blush sometimes because it's wrapped up in politics. And that's why so much of this is stuff I covered in real time. And now I go back and I put a gender lens over it and it allows us to lean in and say, all right, some of this is explained by politics, but the part that's unquantifiable and intangible and thusly easier to gloss over in coverage actually should be explored and unpacked. Oh, yeah. Because if we do that, then maybe we can disrupt it the next time around. That's why I'm so glad you wrote this book, because you are focusing on something that has been a serious problem, not just for presidential candidates, but yeah. for in every walk of life and yeah. things that are unacceptable to say about a man that you would never even consider as a criticism or even things that you think are positive attributes for a man. Being assertive yep. is what we would say, whereas a woman would be considered either aggressive or a the B word yeah. um, be, for the same behavior. And if you want to be the CEO or you want to be the president, you want those qualities. Those are qualities that you want. You need so, those qualities. Exactly. And, and so we heard things like um, uh, overly ambitious, calculate, not likable enough. And I mean, I personally don't think most people want to have dinner with the president and like the president. They want the president to be the leader. Yeah. So why is it okay to make these comments and ask these questions? How electable, how likable is Hillary Clinton? Yeah. When to me, Donald Trump is horrid and someone I would never even want to, I wouldn't want to shake his hand. He, but his behavior, things that we thought, you know, I mean, when he said, I grab pussy, mm. that should have been the end of his campaign, period. And yet women yeah. kept on supporting him mm -hmm. and talking about abilities for female candidates in ways yeah. that were negative. So what's the solution? Tell us some of the solutions that might help to get rid of these stereotypes. So look, I mean, the thing I would say to you about likability is that I do think that it is, it's a BS metric. <laughs> 
candidly. <laughs> we're on we're on cable age, right? I can say right. that. Right. Yeah, you can say but anything you want. <laughs> it's also an essential metric. And it cuts different ways for men and for women based on the research that I was able to unearth and put in this book, which is that I met voters when I was covering Donald Trump who did not like him at all, but were still going to vote for him. Mm. With women, studies would show you that voters have to like you at least a little bit in order to vote for you if you are a female candidate. That makes it a very tough line to draw when you are trying to be aggressive on debate stages, draw contrast between your opponents, because that's how you get ahead. And then also try to put your policy in a way that doesn't make you seem like a know-it-all, that doesn't make you seem overly academic. All of these things make it so that you have to still be likable even when you are trying to be aggressive. And throughout this book, there are multiple things that I think provide a real spine and a consistency the debate stages throughout 2019 and 2020, when Kamala Harris went after Biden on busing, it was both her strongest, most prosecutorial moment. And also it fell apart politically because the details were kind of muddied in the end. Yeah. But also voters felt very betrayed by the fact that she would go after someone that way. When Warren went after Bloomberg on the debate stage in Las Vegas, it was arguably one of her strongest debate performances yeah ever. Democratic operatives still used to say to me, she never got enough credit for saving the party from itself because they were giving this billionaire benefit of the doubt, despite the fact that he had never run nationally outside of New York City. And it had been years since he had been on a ballot, but he had money. So they were giving him benefit of the doubt. Even still, Warren in that moment, while being praised, some people were saying, well, she's a kamikaze candidate. She's doing it because she knows she can't win. So she wants to take people down with her. That's something that even when the women were winning, they were somehow losing too. And I think that's the really juxtaposition moment that I, that I used to tease out in the book. The good news is that Amy Klobuchar was able to have these really strong moments in part because she used comedy, in part because yeah. she says she's used to being in purple states where you're disagreeing with people, but doing it in a way that still doesn't alienate them as your neighbor. But nevertheless, it is a very, very tough needle to thread and one that women do not always get the benefit of the doubt to do successfully. So you said one thing that I just want to follow up on, which is about, and it, it may be a good example, is Amy Klobuchar and how yeah. she was, she would disagree without being disagreeable. Yes. And that goes back to something I read a long, long time ago, Deborah Tannen's book about talking from nine to five. And there was a mm. second book and how women are in a really hard position because if you speak up, you are a, that B word again, yeah. or you don't speak up and you're ignored. Mm -hmm. And so it's finding the right way to communicate so that you are listened to and respected, yeah. but not viewed as, you know, a, I, I, you know, you're not, you're, instead of being aggressive in a disagreeable way, you are assertive. Yeah. And yeah. that's something that I think we can't pay enough attention to. Not uh, only that, Jill, right? But this is something that women have to do, right? But men, rarely do they have to spend a thought on this. Right. And it's why so many of the women's campaigns had to be strategic about how am I drawing contrast? When am I drawing right. contrast? Who am I drawing it with? The men 
were largely not thinking about that outside of the political upside of who they were contrasting with. Right. You had this one section about um, Elizabeth Warren's policy plans, and we all knew her to be, I mean, her kind of brand was the policy wonk. She had a plan for everything. And when she was releasing her, um, I guess when she released that plan about healthcare, you mentioned that it was one of the longest plans about healthcare. And that kind of showed that women have to prove themselves even more than men. And even in the small things like policy plans, and even when she had those, that policy plan, she still got dinged for it. And so I'm wondering, like, what was like, talk to us a little bit more about those like small moments, like policies or that women had to kind of face and, and how they responded to that. Look, I would argue that for the Warren campaign, policy was the whole ball game. Yeah, there was nothing yeah. small about that on that campaign. She was trying to prove her electability and her viability and her qualifications by saying, hey, look, I'm running for president, but I thought about what I want to do with this platform before I told you I was going to run. She had bullet pointed lists, how it was going to be paid for. That sounds really logical to do as a presidential candidate, but not everybody does that. And there was no starker contrast on this than when Warren and the political explanation of this was that they probably waited too long on that health care plan, which was like the signature bedrock question for every Democrat in 2020 was what about Medicare for all and what about health care? So politically, there's an explanation there about why she possibly didn't get the nomination. But the fact that Warren laid it out monetarily, here's how I'm going to pay for it. It's going to come through this. It's going to come through this. The criticism still came. And her campaign acknowledges that when you put things out, you give people something to shoot at. But at the same time, you compare the fact that Warren had thought through the transition to Medicare for all, how to pay for Medicare for all compared with Bernie Sanders, who never really gave those details, despite being asked over and over again. And at one point, another journalist asked, do you think it's silly for Warren to try to do that? And he said, no, I just don't think I have to do that right now. Hmm. And that's because he's a man and can get away with it. Exactly. Uh, maybe. Uh, it, terrible. Um, and and I, I wonder, when you were talking to women voters, what did you hear from them as to how they saw Donald Trump and talk about a lack of policy plans and details and knowledge yeah. of even the issues. Um, but what, what did women say about why they were supporting him despite all the anti-women, anti-everything, immigrant, anti-everything that mostly women would care about? Why did they continue to support him? So Jill, you brought up the grab him by the, grab them by the pussy moment, the access Hollywood tape. Yeah. And I remember going right back out on the campaign trail in the days after that, I had Trump advisors who I had known for over a year at that point who were steadfast loyalists saying, this is over. They were considering, is there a way to get Mike Pence to the top of the ticket? They thought that this thing was done. Hmm. And I went back on the trail. His first campaign event was somewhere in New Hampshire, I think. And a woman, while holding her little eight to 10 month old daughter, I asked her about those comments and she said something to the effect of, well, that's just how men talk. She completely bought the idea that it was locker room talk. Now, those comments manifested very differently on the Democratic side of things. But among Republican women that I spoke to, there was an acknowledgement Mm. that this is how men talk. And they were also willing to overlook it in large part because they thought that the conservative judges, that's something I heard a lot about, were worth it. And so especially when we think about then in general elections. And one of the things that I thought it was important to parse out is people seemed surprised in 16 and 20 that white women went for Trump and that he won white women, which really isn't surprising because white women tend to vote Republican in general elections. Mm. But when Clinton lost in 16, for example, I felt like the knee jerk reaction was people saying, oh, well, women abandoned Hillary Clinton. 
when in fact she won similar amounts of the women of women's votes to Obama and then later to Biden. In fact, the gender gap has been driven by men becoming more conservative, not women just abandoning the woman when she ran mm. in 2016, although it does seem like a convenient excuse for people. Yeah. So I want to circle back to 2020. We had um, Liz Smith on the podcast a couple of months ago. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I found striking about the book wasn't just that there were a ton of women running for president, but also there were a ton of high profile campaign operatives who were women too. Um, Liz Smith for Pete Buttigieg, yeah. um, KO, I think I forgot her last name, but KO for uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, what sure. did that do to the dynamic of the race and I guess how media interacted with campaign staff? Did it change at all? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the more women that you can have in more spaces in media, in campaigns as candidates, the better, because again, it gives you a more reflective apparatus in all aspects. But also, there are studies that show that women tend to gravitate towards women. Women reporters tend to use more women as sources, for example. But also, there's a little bit of a bias of, I think that what women are doing is news. And there's something that Jen Palmieri wrote about in her book about Hillary Clinton that always struck me. This idea that as they were charting the Clinton narrative, Hillary telling her story anew in 2016, Jen thought about the fact that for much of Hillary Clinton's story, it's through the lens of her mom. And that's not a story that Jen Palmieri says she even thought was worth telling or reflective of the American experience, in large part because we just don't tell stories about women often enough. And there's crazy stats about the small percentage of history about women, written about women. But it always struck me that comment about Palmieri then translated to me on the trail with, with Elizabeth Warren, she would do these seminal speeches where they were focused on moments in women's history. So her announcement speech focused on a protest of women. Her major speech done at the pinnacle of her political power in 2019 was about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire and the women yeah. who organized out of it to make change. Yeah. It was a story about her, but it was also a reminder that our collective history doesn't value women's stories in the same way that we value men. But when we change the person who's telling them, we get new stories and new American yeah. heroes. And that's a big part of this too. That's a great point. Yeah. And it, it sort of also relates to how much influence Hillary Clinton's 2016 run had on how many women were willing to take on the challenge of running yeah, for president yeah. in yes. 2020. Do you think that that really played a role in the large number who took up the challenge in 2020? I also think it provided them a bigger foundation, right? I mean, the downside mm -hmm. of it was all of them in one way or another were compared to Hillary Clinton. It always happened mm -hmm. to be a negative. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because more of them ran, that's now seven archetypes in the last 10 years that people are going to have as touchstones. So the next time around, you're going to have a lot more different ways to run as a progressive, as a moderate, as a blonde, as a brunette, who cares? <laughs> but there, it's important because Americans need to have that exercise of normalizing, considering a lot of women for powerful positions. The sheer numbers and flooding the pipeline actually help it become more likely because you're no longer thinking about this as so novel. Instead, you're just looking at, okay, who's a good candidate? And that's the goal. 
Go ahead, Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I'm just wondering, because we, we've talked so much about the media and their role too, and, and so much of this is kind of preparing, I guess, the, the next generation to know that, you know, to break these stereotypes, and the media has such a big role in this. If you could teach a journalism class to, you know, future journalists, what would you tell them in terms of how to frame questions? How should they, you know, talk, to, talk about women running for president or women running for elected offices? Yeah, look, I would love to teach a journalism class on this. I think that would be amazing, but I think uh, the, the goal is just a level playing field, right? And I actually think that I would instruct them to look at the reckoning that happened during the Veep stakes. There were a lot of problematic themes in the Veep stakes, but one of the things that was done well, and in large part, it's because democratic organizations and high pow and powerful democratic women came together and said, they, they created something called We Have Her Back. But if you watch those live shots, when they are asked, hey, is Karen Bass a better fit than Kamala Harris for this? they would sort of get rid of the premise of that question and instead say, Karen Bass brings X to the table, Kamala Harris brings Y to the table, and I'm not gonna pit these women against each other and contrast them in a way that harms one to elevate the other. Yeah. Instead, we can just talk about the merits here. There was also that whole news cycle around ambition, which allowed people to call out the idea that of course, if you are in the running for vice president, you are probably an ambitious person, just as all of the men who have gotten into that role have been throughout time. But I think that's the goal, is to try to look at the ways that these narratives can manifest and potentially check yourself as you're in the moment. Would you ask a male candidate, can men win? No. And I think women are probably gonna still have to be answering that question but there are ways that it can be asked in a way that doesn't just put them on the defensive and on their back heel. Instead, it can allow them a moment to explain why gender is not going to be a barrier to their ultimate success. Because at the end of the day, women run when they run, they do win at the same rates as men do. Same goes for people of color when they are as, when they run as candidates. And so the end of the day, you can elect women. All it takes is actually just voting to elect her. Well, I think what you said earlier about talk about the merits and the qualifications yeah. of each person and look at it. It's, and, and we have to stop saying the female candidates in the same way. I, I'm not all that sensitive about language, but I yeah. hate when I'm identified as a lady lawyer, a female yeah. lawyer. I am not, I'm a lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. I, I can't, I can't stand that. It just, aggravates me no end because yeah. I'm no different than any other lawyer. I have the same training and the same skills, or maybe sometimes better, sometimes not as good, but my training's the same. And so yeah. we just have to get past that stereotype of I am different yeah. than other lawyers. I am Jill, not. it makes it makes me think of something that Senator Barbara Mikulski used to say when she was faced with the idea of the year of the woman. She would say, it's not like we're the year of the caribou. Like she hated that <laughs> phrase. And frankly, I think I do too. I am guilty of pitching yeah. stories around the women can trying to find yeah. ways mm -hmm. to elevate these stories and center female candidates because they're not often or always or consistently centered in the political conversation. But there is an otherization factor on the road to normalizing women's leadership in politics. There is also the idea that you are otherizing them because you're not just talking about the candidates or the senator or the, the lawmaker, right? It is the female senator, the female lawmaker. I'd love to get to a point where we can do more than that. 
Yes. But at the same time, it requires breaking all of these glass ceilings in order to do so. Well, it also takes books like yours to get yes. there, to make people aware and to think about it. So it's an important book, not just a good Thank read. Thank you so yeah, much. Definitely. And so we haven't broken our nation's highest glass ceiling. We're getting there. And, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris is certainly hopefully one key step in getting yes. there. I'm. She. You said in your book that she didn't sit down for you uh, with you for an interview. Um, I, I'm wondering, even though that didn't happen, based on your research for the book, how do you think Kamala is changing the way people view vi the vice president? And I know we talked a little bit about this at the beginning: executive offices and and women in executive office positions. Yeah. Look, even though the vice president didn't talk to me for this, many people who know her well were happy to, and I'm very thankful for that. Mm -hmm. And there are portraits of her that are painted here that are not favorable. For example, her, 20, her 2020 presidential campaign was, by all accounts, a mess. That's not something that I'm the first to report, but certainly I'm able to add a little bit more meat to that bone if you read the book. But at the same time, the way that we view her vice presidency has so many layers over it. The fact that she's run for president before, she's young and dynamic, and we think that she's likely to run for president again, that's a lens that we layer over her. But also the idea that she is a vice president who looks like no one who has ever had that role before because she's historic. Yes, it's a big deal for going higher in American politics than any woman and, and has ever gone before. Republican and Democratic operatives alike say that helps whoever comes next, just having mm -hmm. that mental touchstone for the American mm -hmm. public. But at the same time, I think a lot of the criticisms of her also stem from the place that there are unfair expectations placed upon her to somehow completely change this role when in fact we should just want the vice president to do the job of the vice president which doesn't always mean that you're in the spotlight and you're in the headlines at least not if you're doing it right because most of the people that i talk to who have worked for vice presidents before you are a supporting actor yes if you want to run for president later that's when you're going to have to make some political calculations but by and large, at that point, you're still pretty tied to the president that you served with. So for Kamala Harris, looking at her through that lens means looking at Biden. But to me, it also validated the idea that this country doesn't really understand how to score a vice presidency. And really, the way that you do that is how well are they doing at supporting the president? Right. And do you think that um, the media is like, how do you think the media is treating her as the first woman in that position? I think that that's where some of that expectation comes from. And many yeah. of the people who have worked in her orbit and work in her orbit do feel that they get an unfair shake sometimes. Though I would also say that if you look at some of her interviews, there are moments that do not present her on her in her own words in the best light. The way that she handled the conversation in the early months of the administration around going to the border, the interview that she did with my colleague, Lester Holt, where she said, I haven't been to Europe either. That was an answer that was seen as a little bit too glib. Yeah. She came back to the table and gave a better answer in a press conference the next day. And I know that it might seem cosmetic to talk about the way that people present in interviews, but that is a key yeah. part of running for president. The only thing I would note is that she's the vice president to a president who was known for his gaffes. Those yeah. gaffes were not seen as reflective yeah. on his ability to lead and to govern. They yeah. were seen as liabilities in his ability to campaign and win. But for Kamala Harris, those her gaffes are seen as somehow hmm. 
an impediment to her leadership, it feels like it just has a deeper, more negative meaning to her, despite the fact that a lot of politicians have struggled with their media performances. I, you know, that reminds me of a conversation I had with Ron Klain in a green room at NBC about the first debate in which President Biden did not do as well as I would have hoped. And, mm. and Victor and I were both Biden delegates. Um, and I said to him, what are you doing to make his performance better? And he said, it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with being president. And I said, mm. it doesn't, but it has everything to do with getting to be elected. president. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't get elected otherwise. But before we run out of time, let's just sort of wrap up with talking about the last part of your book where um, you basically talk about things like what you want to see in your lifetime and my lifetime. And yeah. one of those is ERA, which I think is a key need, particularly after Dobbs. I think ERA's existence would have made a difference. Um, and it's now a supreme passion of mine. So can you talk a little bit about ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment? Yeah, look, I, I think the Equal Rights Amendment is fascinating. And the way in which I talk about it in my book is because Michael Beschloss, a friend of ours, brings up the fact that the yeah. thinking in passing the ERA in the 1950s was that it would usher women into the political space because all of a sudden the playing field would be level. Now, we didn't pass the ERA then, but even with that being, even if it had been passed, it's kind of hard to see it as like a magic wand that would have just made gender parity a thing in mm -hmm. government. That's not how this works. Instead, what we saw, and I would track it with the with the Roe decision in 1973, is women being able to take control of their reproductive health and then you saw them rising in the ranks of corporate America and, and mm -hmm. rising in the ranks of business. There is a correlation between those things. But I do think that if you're looking in the larger scheme of an equal rights amendment, certainly right now is a moment that a reckoning with that seems notable and, and, and pretty on par because this is the larger conversation around the role of women and autonomy in this country right now. Let me just mention something that occurred to me that hasn't gotten very much attention, which is that the Attorney General of Illinois, Kwame Raoul, has filed a lawsuit to declare that the ERA is passed because mm -hmm. it has the correct number of states yeah, have ratified it. And there is a very strong legal argument, which I won't go into in detail here, but I am convinced that it is legitimately the final amendment, not the final, but the next amendment to yeah. our constitution. And I'm hoping that maybe I can pique your interest in it enough to give some coverage to this argument and why President Biden and the department are fighting, Department of Justice, are opposing yeah. making the declaration and saying to the NARA, publish this. That's all that stands between that becoming the Equal Rights Amendment becoming part of our Constitution. And I hope that people will start paying attention to that um, and that it will start getting the coverage. So yeah. the last thing to ask is about, of course, we hope that there will be a woman who will achieve the final glass ceiling breakage. Yeah. Uh, Hillary shattered it for sure, but we need to see this go forward more. What do you think it will take to get us there? I think time and more elections. But candidly, I think that we're at a moment where I don't think we're ever going to see a primary that doesn't have at least one woman running in it 
Thankfully, both parties have populated their pipelines with enough viable, qualified women that they will be able to mount runs year after year after year. I think 2024 is a tough one because it's still governed by Biden and Trump as the two heads of their parties, respectively. But I still don't think that means that we're going to see primaries that only mm -hmm. feature those candidates, especially not when you have people like Liz Cheney saying that they're going to do whatever it takes to yes. keep Trump out of the Oval Office. She has been playing with gender in really fascinating ways recently in speeches. For example, saying at a Reagan dinner, dinner recently, men have been running things for a while and it's not really going so well. So she's speaking overtly to gender in a way that yeah. Republicans don't always often do. So I'm watching her, but you're also seeing on the Democratic side, if Biden were to choose not to run, many women who could run again, people that we saw in 2020, but also women who are serving in the cabinet at other levels of government across the country. So the good news is that I think our pipeline problems are very fixed. And now to right. me, it's only a matter of time. And there are some great governors who you cannot argue don't have the executive exactly. experience that you yeah. need to be the president of the United States. Yeah. So Correct. true. For example, yeah. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I have learned a lot, um, and I hope our audience has too. And again, the book is Electable, Why Woman, Why America uh, Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. And again, stressing that, yep. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Ali, for being here. We so enjoyed this. Guys, thank you so much. I had a blast. Jill, that was such a great conversation. I know how excited we both were for that. Um, what did you think? I, well, I mean, she covered so many things that yeah. have been lifelong concerns of mine that I know you weren't aware of and sort of assume that it isn't true. But these things are real. And her book really shows how stereotypes are hurdles that really block the path of women. And I, I, as I said, it's not just in politics. It's not just to becoming president. It's to becoming the CEO of a company. It's to becoming the general counsel of the company. It's to becoming the union boss. Right. It really holds back women. And women have skills that men don't. I, I also want to point out in my own life, I think that there are is some recognition sometimes that women may have a better skill set for certain things. But the truth is, women are just like men. We have different skill sets, each of us. And you can't say all women are better listeners, even though I know that witnesses often think that women are better listeners. And so they will tell you more just because they assume as a woman you're a better listener. It's not always true, but, you know, sometimes that's an advantage that I have in questioning witnesses. And so I'll take advantage of it because I have a lot of disadvantages at the same time. And I think her book really puts this in a context. Um, and because it reaches, I mean, she's obviously a very different generation than I am and, and only slightly different yeah, than yours, but, different, a, yeah, a, yeah. A, but a different generation than yours that yours can learn from this and that I For hope sure. that your, your peers will be reading this and taking seriously how to overcome these and to yeah. clear their own minds. Each of us has our own stereotypes within us yeah, yeah. and we have to get rid of them and we have to move forward. For so sure. I think this was an important book and an important conversation. And I'm grateful that she wrote the book.
I agree. You know, I was telling actually all of my friends that they have to read this book. It's one of those books where, I mean, because so much of it is like you really feel like you're on the campaign trail. But at the same time, it's a lot of research, too. So you get to learn about all of these st statistics about basically how messed up our country is and, <laughs> and why we need women in elected offices and in these positions. And so I've been telling all of my friends they must read this book and hopefully they will. Um, but there's something I, I, I she said that I has stuck really with me, and that is how you know, representation is so intentional. And I yeah. was telling you, I don't think I told you this, but over the summer, um, you knew that I was in DC, but I remember the, my conception of DC was that it was all white men. It was all old white men and that it was this kind mm. of crusty old place of bureaucrats. But one of the things that really surprised me um, interning at the White House was that they use this one uh, phrase called people are policy and they are so good at really making sure that there's diversity at the table and I've been thinking about that recently, and it's just so true. You have people, you have women at the table, you have Asian Americans, you have Black Americans, you have Latino Americans, all of these people at the table, and that's what creates better policy. And so it's it's it was, I think, a really good kind of guiding light for the administration. And um, oh, I think maybe that's Brisbane, nice. but uh, um, I, I don't I don't know what it was like when when you first started in DC, but I was just so surprised at both on the Hill and also at the White House just how kind of well, diverse. Of course, uh, when I started were. in DC, I was, you know, in, in my career path and at the yeah, Department yeah. of Justice, I was the only woman. The only, exactly. And yeah, yeah. luckily, I wasn't the last. Right. But I want to point out and maybe close with this thought that it's not just in politics where representation makes a difference. There is enormous research that shows that corporate boards with diversity, mm -hmm. that corporations with a staff that is diverse, are much more profitable than the ones that aren't. Huge support for that research. So I think I want to close with the thought that diversity matters to profit, to representation, to better mm -hmm. policy. Let's get going on it and let's have President Biden declare the Equal Rights Amendment part of the Constitution. And I know we're going to have many more conversations about the Equal Rights Amendment because it's good both for it's good for all generations. And so it's a fight that I think we need people to take part of. And so we'll be hopefully coming to you more with with that conversation. But we thank you for watching this episode uh, live of iGen Politics with Ali Vitali. Let us know what you think of this live format. Um, be sure to subscribe to us. Uh, the, the link is youtube.com slash Politicon. You can subscribe to us, get our weekly notifications. We're live. Um, and, and let us know what you think. Send us your questions. Send us what you want to see and, and we'll uh, try to deliver for you. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great live episode. Uh, but we'll see you next time and thank you so much for watching. And if you didn't get to watch live, let other, or if you did watch live, let your friends know that you can watch the podcast version. Yeah, listen after to the this. podcast version. Yeah, listen to the podcast yeah. version. Yes, and that will, we will still be on all podcast platforms. So wherever you follow, we'll be there every Wednesday morning.